Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host once again, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest is strength and conditioning and track and field coach, Carl Valley. Carl has coached track and field at every level, from high school to Olympic level in both sprints and hurdles. He's had the privilege of working with great athletes that have been All-American and school record holders. A technology professional, Carl has expertise in performance data as well as understanding for the practical application of equipment software. Carl is currently the Director of Innovation for Inside Tracker and focuses his time on testing elite athletes and using technology to help everyone on any level of human performance reach their goals. On this episode, Carl and I discuss Carl's background and influences, the good and bad things that Carl sees within the human performance profession, athletic profiling, monitoring strategies in sport, heart rate variability, velocity-based training, and much more. This was a really great show, guys, and I hope you enjoy it. Okay, Coach Carl Valley, it's an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you on my podcast. This is uh, an interview I've been trying to hook up for quite a while now, but it's finally great to get you online. Carl, just for the listeners who might be too familiar with who you are, which I'd imagine won't be too many, just fill us in on the background. As a, as a coach, it's you know some people see me as strength and conditioning, some people see me as track. Uh, if you've known me for a while, you might even think about swimming, because in high school I swam and did track, nothing elite, and then in college, is that's when I went to the University of South Florida and wanted to focus on exercise science, um, and, you know, honestly, after uh, watching some of these Olympic athletes train and some of the NFL players, I moved and gravitated a little further away from swimming and, and, and focused more on the, on the track and, and, and weight training side, and... After a couple of years and graduating from USF, I went back to Boston and coached swimming and track for about 10 years at the high school level, did about five years of, of, of college, and now I'm doing most focused on post-collegiate performance, um, mainly, uh, actually soccer is increasing for some reason, and then, uh, you know, I'm still touching with track, uh, obviously with the Rio Olympics coming. Um, we just got it started with a couple guys, uh, specifically on the rehab side. So that's where we're at. I mean, uh, I'm kind of a guy that uh, plays around with a little bit of everything. Um, I'm currently the director of innovation at Inside Tracker, the, the, the company that does blood analysis and, mm. and physiological monitoring for, uh, for, for pro teams. And, uh, and so basically technology, data, um, speed, Formula One to horse racing, anything that is exciting, I'm, I'm pretty much got my finger in. Awesome stuff. And, and we'll talk a little more about uh, uh, blood chemistries and biomarkers later on in the show. Carla, right. another, uh, another question I always ask um, all my guests is, who would you say has been the biggest influence on you, both as a coach and as a person? You know, that, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, if you ask me, probably early in my coaching career, it'd be my own high school coach. Um, obviously, he was a big mentor uh, as a, a coach just getting started. Um, you usually kind of model your own coaching style and, and, and techniques from how you got better. 
uh, Peter Foley, my high school coach, was instrumental for me from going from competent to being successful. Um, the, my biggest joy was actually probably coaching against him in the same league. Obviously, he kicked my butt because um, he established a program for 30 years, and you know the the, the size of his team and the and the depth of his team in terms of, of development just it, it was uh, it was very humbling. But uh, you know, basically, at the end of the season, it was great to be at the league meet and then have a guy that was finished last in the league win the the title in the hundred yard backstroke. So that was my uh, only time I feel like I got a little bit of a jab in with my old coach. Mm. But as I get closer to forty, the person that's really influenced me the most is probably this is considering as a person and as a coach was my grandfather. So I was raised by my grandfather since I was five, and if it wasn't for him, I don't think I would have gotten any type of results with small colleges and junior colleges, because you have to be resourceful. And he was a chemical engineer, and he passed away 11 years ago, uh, you know, I think it's actually, um, you know, this week, I, 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 I think it might be Sunday, I'll have to look, but it's basically a week before the... Uh, the Red Sox won the World Series for the first time, like in, gosh, almost 90 years. And uh, my grandfather made the biggest impact with me in terms of being honest about certain things and, and being really, uh, in my opinion, uh, you know, a logic and reasoning type approach to, to anything that you're doing. So him being an engineer made me think like an engineer. So a lot of the stuff I... I try to approach in terms of problem solving has come from him. So you can see how, like, basically, when you're an early coach, you, you might basically model yourself about how you were coached. But as you become more of an independent person, you're probably going to look forward to who has helped shape you overall to your process of thinking mm. versus the specifics of coaching a, a unique sport. Yes, that, that's a great answer. Really, really great answer. I like the way you put that, too, exactly so. Okay, because I suppose as human beings we're such dynamic organisms. So obviously, people who influences, uh, people who influence over the course of our lives, their input obviously greatly changes. But uh, no, I like the way you worded that. That was that was excellent. Uh, in terms of the the training profession as a whole, I suppose, you know, you being sort of more towards the sort of strength and conditioning, track and field, human performance, and the things. I suppose we're kind of aiming that question more towards sports and sports performance rather than say general the general fitness industry but if you feel you want to go there as well you can but in <laughs> in in your mind what do you think are the best and the worst things about the training profession uh, i appreciate using the, the word profession um instead of industry yeah people go mad when i say that <laughs> Yeah, I, I, the industry term sounds like, uh, you know, one's making uh, cheap, uh, you know, doodads, you know, uh, at a, a factory, which, you know, yeah, yeah, as a profession, we're kind of working with people, yeah. and even though that fitness, and there's a continuum, it goes from healthcare, wellness, fitness, and performance, regardless, you, you're still working with people, so it's a, it's always going to be a people profession, and with the profession, you have to be professional. Um, you know, something I've learned the hard way is is maturing from athlete and competitor to a 
nation's basically more modeling uh, being a good citizen. I, I never thought of that when you when you first getting started in college. You, you know, you're reading all these books on uh, biology and anatomy and physiology. Uh, but when you look at a profession, there's there's a lot of responsibilities that have nothing to do with getting results. Yeah. So that's what I've I've learned is that if you don't do those things, I mean, gosh, fundraising, uh, all these other things. I I look at you know I'll get to the the pros and cons of what's going on currently in the profession now, and then of course the past and where that might be leading in the future. Uh, but where I'm trying to go with all of this is that I think a lot of coaches are trying to get better at coaching when in reality, coaches want to be better at winning. And I have been beaten so many times as a track coach by better programs, but not by better coaches. Mm -hmm. And there's details I never thought was important. You know, the administrative details to me was making sure that everyone handed in their uniform at the end of the year. But the people that are trying to win are trying to get better uniforms to attract better talent. Yeah. So, you know, that's something to be think to, to think of. If, if you're a coach and you're wondering about the X's and O's, that's important. You've got to know how to train people and get people better. But I think if you're trying to get better results, you have to think about any way that's going to improve your chances and, and probability. Mm-hmm. So let's get back to the, the good, bad, and ugly of, of the profession and looking at the continuum ranging from wellness to human performance. I think the, the, the good things are is that there's a lot of good people out there that care about other people. They're not in it for the money. Yeah. So I think that's important to know. Um, another thing is that a lot of these coaches are, are brilliant and creative minds. So it's not just... Um, you know, it's to, just to be clear that the, the, the coaches that there's all this talent out there, and that's what I was trying to convey. And I'm a little bit distracted because I'm I'm uh, dog sitting right now, and I have a, a a little bit of a dog problem right now. But anyway, <laughs> no, no, you're you're, you're you're still making plenty of sense to me. Go ahead. Okay, it's hard to literally juggle uh, a a borrowed uh, uh, animal and uh, a cup of coffee here. So. Let's go to the negatives because that's where I've probably noted, uh, noted of being a very uh, vocal and sometimes overly negative. I admit that a lot of times I've, what I've seen is maybe uh, injustice, and I took it along, you know, the, the wrong way to, 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 to basically explain what I thought was wrong. Mm-hmm. And now I realize that being honest and being uh, vocal might not be popular. So I think that the better thing is to look at where are we making our mistakes, and it's not about sports science, and it's not about that. It's about where are we putting our energies to. So I look back in the, in the last 15 years from when I graduated college where I am now, I say that the, the biggest problem with the profession is that we weren't data-driven, and we were more story and testimonial driven. Yeah. So the that's... focus of biography over biology has been too marketing based. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a difference between marketing a, a service versus marketing results. And I think that a lot of people are trying to hype certain things that really don't matter, you know? And 
science now that is great for a TED talk, but it's not going to help you win a medal. Mm-hmm. So I think that the profession can really get better at trying to deal with the things that most people put their heads in the sand. And an example of this is the NBA, and it's nothing against the NBA. Like I love the sport, but what you're seeing because of the nature of playing over 80 games on the hardwood is a lot of strength conditioning coaches um, are wanting to avoid the problem, which is guys are coming from a pedigree of just playing basketball. And, and if you're a strength coach and your focus is on conditioning and strength and you're not doing any of those two things, what are you doing? You know, you can't just be a regeneration guy or a monitoring guy. You're basically avoiding the, the uncomfortable point is you're not training and that's a problem. So I think with sport being entertainment driven with the schedules, there's a lot of stuff that we're massaging, which is not getting back to fundamentals. So I'd say that right now the NBA, because of the injury patterns, is a kind of a combination of we got to stop off-season uh, pickup games and get these guys to rest better. And then conversely, the opposite is true, where you got to get people to train harder and more honest. Um, you can go and do all these great battling rope circuits and you know, and be on commercials, but the, the real thing is, if you're not doing a conventional strength conditioning program, you know, squatting and doing, you know, trying to get uh, more iron on the bar or more, you know, wattage of your activities, you're going to be doomed. Yeah, so I think uh, I, I think I heard you say on, on Rob Pacey's podcast, training trumps monitoring. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, and that's that's a good point. Is that monitoring, and I'm to blame, is because I love gadgets. I mean, I love data. I love seeing information on a screen and visualize. It's beautiful. It's 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 my favorite part when I read a research study is to see how they visualized it. Mm-hmm. But training data does trump monitoring because there's a cause and effect. Yeah. Um. So the problem is a lot of stuff that we're seeing with the NBA is the canary in the coal mine for other sports. You see people doing a lot of jump training, excuse me, jump testing. And the problem is a very talented athlete can jump really well by just playing sports. and Or they're just genetically gifted. It doesn't show what we need to show is changes from training, not, hey, did you find some talented athletes and you're showing how gifted they are. So I've been focusing on that. So that, those are the things. I mean, it, it's these are some free association ideas. I blame the couch that I'm kind of sitting on because I'm probably just having free association, like you know, uh, some sort of uh, therapy. But the reality is, is that uh, no one wants to be honest about the things that are kind of embarrassing, such as what happens if you have an athlete that has to work with you. I, I was talking to a very good strength coach the other day who basically was, we were talking the difference between private sector, meaning off-season training facilities, and I do off-season training, so I, I understand both, uh, you know, coaching a team and the athletes are getting, even though you might be recruiting them if you're in track uh, for the collegiate side, but if you're a strength coach in a team sport, you're kind of inheriting the guys that are there. If you're a private sector person, people are gravitating towards you for different reasons. 
So there's a volunteer army, which is basically people wanting to work with you. And then there's the draft, which is, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, an expert in Irish history, but in the U.S., the, the draft uh, soldiers, um, you know, this is, you know, one of the biggest uh, uh, you know, parts of the Vietnam era is that, you know, the draft and, and people having to fight versus wanting to. Mm-hmm. So I think when you're a team coach, it, it's hard to compare the two. So the reason I bring that up is that people have to be honest about what's the underlying problem. So I brought up the volunteer army versus the draft because as a coach in a team sport, you might get a, a jerk who's talented, you know, he plays hard in practice, but when it comes to the weight room, you know, he, he's rolling his eyes, or it could be a sheet, she's not interested and not engaged, and she's not polite, he's not polite. What do you do with that? I don't see too many DVDs and blogs talking about working with the jerk. Yeah. You know? So those are the things that, again, it gets back to working with people, and there's some great coaches that are so charismatic, they get people to do things when the, the average coach, you know, they might know all the X and O's, can't, can't get it to work because these people are just, it's hard to get personalities that might not be, you know, benign to do anything. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's funny you say that too because lately I've been, uh, I was on the Canadian uh, Coaching um, Center website and you know listen to some audio interviews with Dan Faft and you know you, you often like uh, you know you often think of Dan and straight away you think oh a guy who's sort of very analytical a deep thinker and, and then the, the question was posed to him you know like what is kind of your whole training philosophy and the first thing he said was I want to always make sure my training's fun that's the first thing he said you know and, and to keep people engaged and, and kind of like what you were saying at the start about being nearly you know you're, you're more of a role model you know when you call it a, a profession rather than an industry you see yourself that you're a role model and Dan says that his real goal is to just make his athletes better people and that if he, he wants the, the qualities that they develop as athletes to kind of bleed into their everyday life and, and, and be a foundation for further success in life he's like if they don't win a medal or if they don't make Olympic Games I don't care he says what feels more better is like someone who rings him you know, gives him a phone call or sends him a letter years, like 30 years later after he'd coached him and, and they want to say thanks for, for the influence that he was in their lives. Like, But uh, it's just so funny because, you, you know, you listen to Dan because, you know, you are that young coach going, I want to listen to all, like, you know, the, the way he thinks about anatomy and the way, the, way he, the way he programs and, you know, like what's he doing for acceleration, absolute speed. And the first thing he says is, I want, I think training should be fun, it should be engaging, it should make people better, it should make athletes better people in the long run for society, like, you know, so it, it, I completely agree with where you're going with this, and and it's so funny you said that, you know, what do you do with that athlete who rolls their eyes, and, and there is nobody writing stuff out there on that, it's like, okay, yeah, so this is how you increase strength, this is how you increase, you know, uh, hypertrophy, this is how you increase speed and power, and it's like, yeah, but what if, what if they don't want to do it, what do I do then? <laughs> yeah, so... What I've been doing is I'm trying to look at my biggest my biggest headaches and say I can't be the only one that's dealing with this stuff. No, you're not. Well, you're not in this in this yeah. aspect anyway. <laughs> and and so like with Dan talking about fun, you know, you know, like I remember like a long time ago, you know, uh, this one track coach, you know, he was, you know, researching. This is before like. You know, the, the internet was really accessible. Yeah. Um, you know, he's looking around at uh, making all these appointments for uh, in June 
basically trying to schedule all of the appointments because if you're on TV, everyone wants to look good. Now, it's a lot more convenient for a guy to get a haircut and show up, uh, you know, with a, with a nice trim and, you know, uh, and, and look good on TV. But for females, because I'm obviously a male, you know, they have a, uh, you go to a salon, you don't go to a barber, or you don't go to like a convenient, you know, there's a little bit more personalization in, in getting your hair done. Yeah. And in uh, salon, they, they book up, you know, and I didn't know that stuff. So like, you know, my first couple of years of coaching, you know, uh, one of the assistants is, is panicking because he's trying to do flights. And if you don't think about all the things that matter in terms of an athlete, it's not just, uh, you know, performance. It's, you know, does their, is their family going to be flying out, all that stuff. Now, Dan did mention fun, and athlete user experience is a term that I'm trying to coin because I remember being bored as an athlete myself. Yeah. You know, and you've been through a process where it's like you're on the field, this is like your 10th year of doing tempo, and you're just watching guys stride back and forth, and if your energy is low, then what's going to happen with the... Uh, you know, the athlete, they're going to perceive that. It's going to pick it up. So athletes right now, because they're training better at an earlier year, you know, in high school they could be foam rolling, and then they're foam rolling in, in college, then they're foam rolling in the pros, and they're burnt out. So it's periodization of fun will trump periodization of anything else because all these exotic Eastern Bloc models that, are you know translated and guys thinking it's the holy grail the more important thing is is the athlete having fun are they finding it rewarding so that's a balance fun hey let them socialize and maybe get a little bit uh, you know they're not a hundred percent focused on the warm-up I prefer a very good warm-up done for the whole year than having this military you know uh, you know rogue state Everyone's quiet. They feel like there's a sniper tower. You know, it's like punishment. It's prison yard. No, we want to make sure that there's fun. On the other hand, rewarding comes from paying your dues so that the athlete feels like they're getting better. Mm-hmm. Even if they're not getting faster, which is hard to do on the elite side of sprinting, you can't get faster every year. Usain Bolt has not gotten faster since 2009. Right? Yeah. So why does he run? You know, so there's, comp- there's competition, there's engagement. It's completely, you know, I could care less about these really, really exotic periodization books. I have them all, so I'm guilty, I'm a hypocrite. But I'm realizing that stuff does come into play, but your priorities need to make sure that the athletes are doing what you know. Um, uh, excuse me, getting athletes to do uh, what you tell them to do is probably more important than how much you know. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's the standard for me. I'm butchering my own quote. I saw it posted on a couple tweets, but it's not what you know; it's what you can get your athletes to do. Is my my little uh, my little saying that I like to bring up because that's where the advantage is: is what can you get people to do versus do you have five different uh, periodization books translated into English? Yeah. So you know. Just to, just to wrap this one point up, is that you have to care about what your athletes care about. Um, and I, I see patterns. This is just observations. 
Uh, I have coached both males and females and high school, college, and post. The number one thing is that the athlete, yes, they have to have fun, um, but they have to have a kind of a, uh, you know, more than just what they're interested in. You know, like a lot of the, the athletes I work with that are in soccer, they love fast cars. And a lot of males like fast cars. Some, some, some athletes don't like cars at all. Um, you know, but what I'm getting at is you have to know the uh, gender differences. You have to know the age differences. You have to know the pressure differences. Otherwise, uh, you know, what worked for one college for a, a male team might not work for a high school female team. And that's my biggest weakness is that I've always had my perspective of what I've known in high school and college, and I have no idea what it's like to do all of the press-type stuff for post-collegiate. You know, that stuff's draining when you're in Europe and you're traveling, and you have to do all of these interviews. I never thought that was a, a fatiguing situation, because guess what? Robbie, believe it or not, I've never been interviewed as an athlete. <laughs> so... <laughs> I don't know. I could go on. Well, let's move forward. There's probably something a lot more interesting than talking about the the personal lives, the social lives of athletes. Well, but before we before we move into the the I'm a bit far away from my laptop. Before we we move into uh, the main sort of topic of this podcast, which will be technology and sport and monitoring. Give me something that's good within our profession. What like what what is something that you do see on a day to day basis, and you're like that's that's definitely making a profession a a, a better profession as it moves forward. I think that the strength conditioning and performance industry is getting more involved with uh, um, important uh, just life things in general. Like I'm seeing a lot of focus on uh, you know walks for hunger, you know cancer type things. Yeah. Like I, I, I just like that because instead of isolating our profession into a weight room or on the track or field, we're getting now out there to, to help a broader range of communities, not just athletes. Yes. So that's kind of what I what I think. Yeah, no, that's a great great answer. All right, so Carl, you're you're definitely uh, becoming known as someone who seems to be very well versed when it comes to speaking about and educating people about technology in sport. So maybe uh, just for people who are listening and this is even more so for myself could you maybe just touch into why we would want to monitor uh, certain modes of monitoring so objective and subjective um, and sort of like you know maybe like mo- basically monitoring 101 for people so even like explaining the difference between internal loads and external loads so for the next 10-20 minutes you can kind of get into this whole topic of monitoring and, and what you think are worthwhile measures to do with your athletes both from a subjective and objective end. I know you you know you you speak about looking at even blood chemistries and biochemical markers it's not just uh, you know um, sort of more um, external things like you know loads lifted on the bar and stuff like that so maybe get into that question in as much detail as you want. Sure let's just get into the, the broader sections is internal versus external um, physiological monitoring versus training, yeah. the actual training data, and then subjective versus objective. Um, those are three important contexts uh, because when we look at monitoring, you'll ask 10 people about monitoring, 
you get ten different answers. Yeah, and this and this, this is why you're on the podcast to clear up all this. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll I'll just share some of my uh, my growing pains. Is the first thing you need to know is uh, measurement, because that's what it comes down to. It's like you're taking a measurement. All of this stuff is measurements. Now, subjective. We know that it's basically the athlete giving their feedback based upon their perceptions and the way they feel. That's important information. And the better you do that, the more you can glean from it. Um, on the other side of the coin is objective, which is getting things that are a little bit more, uh, more concrete values. But, you know, like for example, body composition and, you know, other things that we're all familiar with. Now, a lot of people gravitate towards one or the other. I am kind of a, a moderate, so I like to have a combination of both. Yeah. You have to do a really good job on the subjective side, otherwise you're just not going to have those relationships with your athletes, and then you can't build trust. A lot of people talk about this stuff on Twitter and it annoys me. It's like, how are you building trust with four-week off-seasons? You know, it's like, you know, I hate these guys that, that, that bang their chest and you know, and Twitter's my muse now because it used to be just blogs, but now Twitter you can create so much content quickly. Uh, everyone can poke the bear, so to speak. So you know, uh, subjective is about kind of relationships and communicating back and forth, uh, feedback based upon things that we all kind of don't know how to measure usually. Um, so there's a lot of things like perceived exertion, and you know. I think that's that's important so that people understand how to calibrate effort. You know, someone you tell a, a freshman athlete in high school, "Oh my God, this is so hard! It's killer! I'm dying!" Right? And their heart rate's up at like 160. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing really taxing. Um, then you have a really tough athlete that is saying it's a breeze because he he's macho, and it's like you know 200 beats. You know, too proud to say that it, it hurts him. So you got to have basically a way to see what does the athlete feel based upon objective data, which is your, your typical heart rate data, your your lifting and jumping performances, your velocities from sprinting, etc. So that's important to know and have both. A lot of people gravitate towards the convenient. So you'll see all these wellness questionnaires, and boy, are those boring. So I always ask people that do the wellness questionnaires, do you do a wellness questionnaire for work? Like, you don't see, like, bankers and, like, you know, some sort of, like, uh, auto dealer having subjective indicators because it's boring, right? So with subjective indicators, I think you need to do it uh, because longitudinal data matters. Do it and do, like, five good questions and one through ten. Then ask from that information one really good question and right now with video phones, you can get like a 20 to 30 second clip, and now you have like a, a video log with the athlete. So every smartphone can be a really nice opportunity to get more data than just a number from a touch screen. Uh, facial coding, which is in the manual that you saw, yeah. is going to grow because reading people is a dying art. You know, when you're, when you're going texting someone, there's much difference between having a bagel with an athlete um, you know, while you're having breakfast and, and, and discussing things. So yeah, this, there's a compromise. That, that was one of the, questions, that was one of the questions I wanted to ask was the facial coding and you touched on to it. Okay, good. So I anticipated something. 
but there's there's a combination where technology and, and the compromise is getting a lot of information quickly scaled but then you got to do the opposite to keep the human element involved so I'm a polarized uh, if that if that's a term for monitoring is I want to get more human and more technology which sounds like how can you do both but you just want to make sure that you get more extreme so you can cover the middle um, now the next thing is internal versus external loads. So the, the internal responses to what people do outside of, you know, uh, the internal environment. So like for example, um, running a little faster, you can get velocities of someone on a GPS, but how they respond internally is much different. So we talked about blood analysis in the beginning. Um, we have a lot of things going on in the body. You got the, the microbiome that's hot. Everyone's talking about, you know, gut checks, you know, and you know anything that's uh, a nice little headline on uh, Wall Street Journal or you know the Times. You're getting people talking about genetic testing, and you know what does that mean for evaluating pretty much static data, um, and then of course biochemical data from urine, saliva, and of course blood. So blood data is, you know, the first level is a screen, making sure there's no disease, there's no vitamin deficiencies. Then you get into some of the more advanced stuff as you start looking at load response and how people are responding to the same load. You can get a body with the same testing performances in terms of jumping, sprinting, and cutting, all that stuff, and guess what? Uh, you're going to get people that might respond differently internally. So, you know, everyone should be blood testing. I'm biased, obviously, because, you know, uh, I, I've used it since the late 90s, and I've found that it really teases out so much interesting information. Um, something as simple as a, a, a complete blood count can really get basic information in the hands of people. So biomarkers are excellent ways to get information specifically on nutrition. So many people uh, measure everything, but how do you measure nutrition? Well, you can do body fat, but a lean person might not be eating right. You can do some physiological testing, maybe see how much glycogen stores they have, and that's important. But if you really want to see trends of what people are doing behavior-wise, always do quarterly panels, and you can see you know, different phases of the season, what kind of patterns might be trending up and down. So internal is more like what's going on in terms of response. External is more of like kind of like the what you can see in terms of uh, traditional metrics of loading. Mm -hmm. And just with with that with the blood chemistry and the complete blood count, what what exactly are you looking for yourself? Like what is there definitely is there definite definite markers you always want to see? I know, yeah, I, I, mean, I know iron iron's a big one with you with the female athletes, isn't it? Yeah, so again, you know, you got to understand the male and female differences. Female, uh, there are some, and both sides have reproductive needs. So I think people, you have to be honest in talking about the differences between men and women in terms of, you know, the biological differences. And then you also have to talk about cultural differences. Um, a lot of people eat differently because of where they live and, and their religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. So with, with nutrition and, and blood work, 
that's easy to do. People can say, okay, are you positive or negative for being deficient in a vitamin and mineral? But things get a little bit more murky, uh, Robbie, with, with, with androgens and you know inflammation markers because timing of tests becomes instrumental. Yeah. If you time a test three different days based upon post-workout, for example, NFL team uh, plays on a Sunday, and Tuesday is kind of like their day of volunteerism. You know, like they don't have to technically kind of like a day off. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if you test then, that's much different than if you tested Monday, the day after the, of course. you know, the uh, the game, or if you tested on Wednesday. So the day that you time and the chronobiology. If you get a guy that went out west to another part of of the U.S., let's just let's say that the the Miami Dolphins go and play the Seattle Seahawks, and during their bye week they decide, you know, hey, we want. And excuse me. The, the excuse me. The day after the the previous week, they decide to fly over and get sort of adjusted to Monday night football. That's that's you're dealing with a three hour shift, which is a huge difference in the chronobiology. Mm-hmm. So, like with cortisol and other stress hormones, you have to make sure that when you're acquiring this data, yeah, it's not just like it's a random date. Each hour means something with a lot of these tests. Now, there's some tests that don't require a fast, so it's not like, okay, he ate something different in the last couple days, and there's some that are really responsive to, to eating within 30 minutes. So, you know, that's why you know, standardization, protocols, and procedures are so important. Uh, I call it truth serum. Obviously, other people have little coins and phrases for it, but for me, it's like honesty comes with objective data, and then talking to the athlete about that data. It's great to say, oh, subjectively, I'm eating great, coach. But then what happens is, you know, you know, when you see the biomarkers and you see garbage, then what? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, it just comes down to being honest is what the objective data is. And subjective is, is sometimes better because technology has limits. Yeah. Um, remember, technology is not right. It's just more consistent. So, uh, I 100% agree. It's, it's about bringing the best of both worlds together. Now, so you've touched on, on some of the some of the uh, testing monitoring you do, but let, let's just say, and it's for, for listeners that don't know, I, I met Carl when I was over in America this year, and we sat down and we spoke about this, and I actually asked Carl this question at the time, and he gave some great information, so I'd, I'd like you to, I'd love to, you to touch on this again just for the benefit of the listeners. But so when an athlete comes to you for the first time, what happens? Like, how does that whole process go? You know, so I remember you were telling me that you know you like to get a feel for their personality, and then after you kind of get a feel for who they are as a person, then you got into more of your testing or your profiling. So maybe just get into like, I'm I'm a brand new athlete. I'm going to Caravalli to coach me. What what happens? Well, just like uh, meeting in general, I'll probably be meeting you at the uh, uh, the cafe on the common in uh, in in Waltham yeah. or at the in a pickle diner in Waltham because it's my favorite place is to have coffee and my favorite breakfast place. But, uh, you know, uh, just a general meeting is, is usually good. You can tell a lot early on. Um, I've had a lot of athletes relocate. I've had athletes stay temporarily for like three months, sometimes a year. Um, sometimes I've moved 
I've done that early in my career where I moved to work with the athletes. But, you know, most of my focus now on is, uh, as I said when we sat down, um, you know, during the summer, is it's, it's humbling, and I don't mind doing it. First thing I do with an athlete is I send them to a really good physical therapist mm-hmm. that has an ability to screen out orthopedically, head to toe, and then talk to them for a long period of time. Most of my advanced screens are just going to see a physical therapist and just talking about basically when they started competing all the way to the present because you know athletes can fill out those those forms of injury history, but nothing's better than going over them with a person. So I just farm it out. I don't, you know, like I like to review it and talk about it after I get that info. Yeah. But if you don't go and have a good medical guy first, everyone is coming with baggage. So as I work with older athletes, boy, it's like I feel like I'm doing some sort of like Sherlock Holmes, you know, investigation with like what happened here? Did you complete the rehab? Was the therapist good, etc.? So, anyway, that's kind of that in a nutshell. And then from from that from the initial meeting, and then from the physical uh, physical therapy assessment or orthopedic assessment, from a performance standpoint, performance sort of profiling standpoint, is there certain things you are always going to look at? Like, are you always going to look at, you know? Will you you know do a timed one hundred meter sprint? Let's say it's a hundred meter sprinter or whatever their event is. A time you know, will you look at their speed? Will you look at their jump profile? Will you look at their strength numbers? Is there certain things you always want to look at with people, or will it vary depending on what 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 they present in front of you? To be honest, I do very little uh, performance profiling. Um, I usually get injured people, so walking you know with doing gait analysis and stuff yeah. like that. Just getting people to walk. I, I got. I had an athlete, um, and he's probably going to listen to this. Is that you know, obviously he he played at a very high level in college football, and was getting ready for um, uh, you know NFL, and we just had him warm up, and he sat down, and he basically was in pain. Yeah. And just warming up. I mean, he couldn't warm up. I mean, so that was the first screen, and for me, that's probably more important than getting on a on a you know some sort of uh, you know sensor or whatever because you know getting someone's maximum broad jump usually they're coming for another opportunity. So I get a lot of athletes that are you know resurrection projects. You know they they're they're looking around, they're desperate, and you know I'll, I'm not you know ashamed to, to admit it that I'm not usually the first person's on their list. You know, like usually you're going to have your typical major training facility chain or you're dealing with some super expert that's, you know, in another country or they're, you know, they're working with a shoe company. I'm usually probably third in line. So when I work with people, it's usually the guys that are uh, coming in that are a little bit past their prime or hurt. So that first thing is warming up. If you can't warm up, that's my best spring. Then... From there is, can you train, and what is your training history? Mm. Athletes that always try to work around injuries, they will be successful early on. But I, and I'll warn this to any young coach. If you're quick to work around it, an exercise because the athlete, for some reason, doesn't tolerate it, it's okay to use a, a secondary option, 
and Plan B is great, but injustice somewhere is injustice everywhere. Mm-hmm. And Martin Luther King said that, and I use that you know, for training selfishly, but I've always thought like you paint yourself into a corner, that's a problem. Um, because what happens, you start running out of exercises, and pretty soon you're going to be doing, you know, machines at some sort of fitness center because you can't do the basics. Yeah. So if you can't do an exercise, yeah, there's other options. But if you can't rehab to do that effectively and functionally well, you're going to need probably a different exercise down the road. So, for example, I had an athlete after the Olympics who had an Achilles issue, right? So after a long season outdoors, it was around September, October, we started getting to train, right? After a couple weeks, it was just nagging. So we had to go see sports medicine professional. Um, But because he could do all the exercises safely, he couldn't run on it for, I think it was basically two or three weeks. And he was just snatching high volume for just like every other day just snatching to get back into the swing of things. But if you couldn't snatch because you had an issue with somewhere else and you said, well, I'm just going to work around this, the, 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 the tools you need become eliminated from your toolbox. And then when you do need it, it's not there. So everyone talked about the analogy of the tools in the toolbox, but you want to have a lot of tools and be really good at them and I see a lot of people actually reducing their toolkit because they're so focused on getting a stimulus or maintaining strength or, or doing these compromised, lame protocols because they just want to feel like we're training versus actually getting people better. Yeah. So that to me, that's the, the I mean, it's, I wish it was like this, it, uh, this kind of clean formula, but just off the top of the head, Send them there. Once I get there, it's like, okay, let's see how you train. And then you get more things to kind of rear their ugly heads. So, yeah, you might find out they got hurt in the past, but you can tell if they don't feel comfortable with certain exercises and they're spooked if they're doing certain weights or loads or they prefer, uh, you know, uh, make some changes uh, around uh, a program. It's just you're gonna have. It takes time to figure that out. Um, I also like film. I think the best thing to do is to see film of the athlete if you have good footage. Uh, the problem with iPhones and, and Android phones is that while I love the technology, everyone thinks they're a photographer and videographer. So, actually, the technologies hurt the quality of footage. Uh, not it's not necessarily the frames per second or the 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 uh, solution it's or that it's shaky is that you just see less quality you know more selfie style footage than actual like hey longitudinal panning and it's just it's getting worse so that's important is that you get good film and and teach people how to get that yeah yeah just uh, moving on with just one or two more questions with the technology Within uh, within training these days, what what are your thoughts on uh, VBT? It's velocity based training. It's it's, be- oh. it's it's becoming a very big thing lately. Uh, you know, in the whole sort of training profession, definitely on the on the internet sphere. So, what what are your thoughts on <laughs> what are your thoughts on velocity based training? Now, I, I got to give credit. I talked to Brian Mann yesterday. That that man. 
the Brian, the man. Yeah. And, uh, um, he, he's good. He's from Oklahoma. So every time I talk to him, I feel like, uh, you know, I forget the, the actor and boxer, uh, but he does really sound like that guy from Rocky Five. Or oh. Rocky, yeah, Rocky Five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tons and tons of guys. Tommy Gunn. Tommy Gunn. So, you know, he, he, I, I love his accent because it's just so, uh, it's such like a good country, uh, reminds me of Blake Shelton from uh, The Voice. But anyway, uh, velocity-based training, I'm a big proponent of it, and I'm also the biggest critic of it. With anything, technology always makes the trajectory of people's mistakes faster and more extreme. So, example, Tendo was in vogue, early 2000s, guys doing reverse curls, uh, on the cleans to try to get their bar speed. It was atrocious. And I'm not, I'm not saying that it was my athletes. You know, I didn't use the Tendo. Um, I use, I'm more of a video guy because you can get frames and if that matters. Um, but with velocity-based training, there's a lot of good points to it. I love it. I think it's going to help. But it's always, always uh, technology is always as good as the education. So, there's three players in the in the space. It's um, assess to perform, kinetic performance, and and train with push or push strength. Um, I think they, tra- they 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 changed their uh, their company name or website, so I, I don't know if it's the latest version. Um, but getting bar velocity is nice. It's a proxy to to performance. But people can't even do jump testing properly, never mind something more complicated like a clean and jerk. So the issue I have with all the technology is people are eager to get data, but acquiring data means you have a plan of like, what are you trying to accomplish? So with velocity-based training, my whole purpose is more instead of bar speed, but bar path and bar trajectory. Mm -hmm. Um, Are you doing the lifts correctly? For example, if you go on the internet, look and see who's cleaning properly. And what we're seeing here is the bar path not being close to the center of mass and close to the body, and you see the arm swing out, it's a disaster. So what do we see? We see big numbers, but we see bad transfer. The whole purpose of lifting weights is to get better for locomotion, either on the sport, on the on the land or water, or whatever you're doing. So the key is with bar velocity is to see how that's transferring. That's okay, quite, isn't isn't that, that 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 was originally how Brian got into VBT? He was saying that he was doing a paper and and he was he was saying that all cleans definitely transfer to running and he was trying to prove it and then when he was trying to put the data together of that the cleans transferred or into vertical jump it was actually sorry into vertical jump yeah vertical jump that there was no it did, didn't carry over at all he couldn't understand why and then what he realised was that because the way the guys were doing the cleans that he was in the research on they were just horrendous technique and the bar was moving way too slow so there was just no transfer so, and that's how he kind of came into this idea of velocity based training and bar speeds to train particular strength qualities yeah, so he looked at the strength qualities, and he can rattle off the Russians and the, you know, the all those guys from yeah, the, yeah. the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But you know, the whole thing is, is like observationally, we have a major website, and I love Doctor Squat. 
I, I think he's a he's done a lot for for strength conditioning. But every single month, I get the same email with the link to how apparently in two thousand excuse me nineteen sixty four that there was this Olympic this at the Olympics there was this study going on comparing all the athletes to Olympic lifters and they could outrun anyone now. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. First of all, Wikipedia can kind of kill off most of these, these, uh, you know, these myths and, le- and urban legends with Olympic lifting. Olympic lifting has value. Please don't, you know, I've I've said uh, Olympic lifting has limits because I remember I was not Olympic lifting. Uh, I think it was like a swimmer or or even a golfer or something like that. Like in the late 90s, we're just lifting, and someone says, oh, you're not Olympic lifting, you're not going to get power. Mm-hmm. And that's what urged me to write my what a lie article, because it was the play on the wattage myth. Now, the reason I, you stay with me, this, this is all going to make sense, I promise. Uh, the issue with, the, with, with Fred Hatfield is when he had that posted, he mentioned in 1964, it was, it was not the Mexico Olympic at 68. Right. Yeah. Also, in 1964, um, how many besides Americans are using yards? So, to have this international dream team of sports scientists having to decide that 25 yards is the gold standard is a little bit suspicious, a little bit fishy. Then, because of the 64 Olympics, who is he beating? So, if you look at the Olympic lifters, then. And he, even some of them are still alive. People think all this stuff is dead. But I actually bumped into, in Jacksonville, um, the Bob, uh, Bob Hayes. Now, he was unhealthy. He died of complications of, of disease. And I didn't know it was Bob Hayes. I think I was at a uh, Donald's and a gas station. And the first thing in, because for years everyone's talking about this, was... Were you tested for against Olympic weightlifters? He said explicitly not. So the 100-meter champion was not ever, uh, never ran against any Olympic lifters. It never happened. Yeah. So it was, so it was just an, now, it was, it's just an urban myth then, was it? It's, it never happened. Yeah. Show me, name names. It's sort of like these conspiracy theory people on YouTube. All right, maybe that's a good theory, but show me, you know how printers are. It's history. Call them up. You know, it's like you know, if you want to know about the '68 Olympics and the and the and the and the and the protest, you go John Carlos on Facebook. It, just contact these people. Call them. Mail them. So it, it's just it's such lies. Now, Olympic weightlifting. Yes, if you're getting more leg power, you have a better chance. So on the other hand. Then we have the people that do the exact opposite, which is like, oh, don't don't lift weights at all. You know, we're going all natural. Well, they're, they're just pick the one in the middle. So with with bar velocity, and this is gets back, is to transfer. Think historically first. Think logic and reasoning. Then get into technology. So when he found out that the Olympic lifts got better, the Olympic lift performance got better but not necessarily the output, because I've sent guys to Olympic weightlifting people in the past that made them better weightlifters, 
But they, like, one of the things, we had a guy who was just trying to get more weight, and he said, well, these guys are catching too high. He's got to catch lower. And, yeah, eventually I think catching deeper is healthy for, you know, it's good to have a good squat depth and stuff like that. I mean, all my guys squat below parallel. But the problem with this is that he was having people catch lower to get a better number. Mm. Not It's sort of like going wider on a squat or on a deadlift. Yeah, yeah, True. yeah. You're getting the number better, but not getting better. Yeah, exactly. And I see that all the time. My biggest, what I, fine, now that I'm fired up, Robbie, the thing I hate most is glorified trap bar deadlift numbers. Yeah. So one guy posted a, a, a stupid video of this guy, you know, and he's, and he's celebrating this 315 trap bar deadlift. And I remember not, like, you know, besides doing, like, wellness, like, walking, and, you know, doing, like, activities of a yard work. You know, I, I don't really lift hard or heavy, okay? Without really doing anything, I, I can just go up and just pick up a trap bar deadlift of 315. That's because my, my nervous system is familiar with the exercise. I've done it in the past. It's, it's a skill, too. It's not impressive to do that. But this is what's happening is people want better numbers, but not better performances. Yeah. So, so, anyway, so, tra- so tra- transfer the transfer of training is a big issue within our profession. In that people seem to have people seem to be very ignorant of this idea of you know the transfer of training is what you're actually doing outside of your sport, transferring to make you better at your sport, and and oftentimes it's not. So you know, uh, there's some good people out there, and. Um, you know, I was talking to a really good uh, fitness coach, and you know him personally, is, is Coach McKay. Yes, yeah, David McKay, yeah. Great guy, underrated. You know why? Because he's honest. He's trying to do a good job. He's extremely well-read. He is um, just, I, I love him to death, because it's just such a fresh, breath of fresh air. So, yeah. I try to distill things to make it very similar, simple, and very explicit. When people said we're lifting, if you're looking to reduce injuries, that gets complicated. But if you're talking about performance, are you getting faster and sustaining speed, which is conditioning? So when people say, "Oh, we're you know we're doing this for explosiveness," all right, are you getting guys faster? Yeah. No one's timing. Yeah. You know, so I'm like, okay, it is so hard to get people faster. It, there's just something to be said for that. I mean, this this is uh this is actually what kind of attracted me to your articles and and your writing and kind of your way of thinking was when you kind of brought this up, like you know, and I, you know, I'm guilty of it too. I'd be like, oh, you, you know, we're 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 working on speed today, or we're working on rate of force development, and or you know, we're working on strength, even though strength is kind of a a bit more of a you know, out of the other strength qualities, it's probably the dumbest one. It's like the easiest one to probably to attain and the easiest one to measure, obviously, because max testing, you know, because the expression of absolute strength isn't under a timer strength. But when people start going, all right, we're working on power, working on speed. And then as you just said, that well, how do you know? Like, are, are, are you jumping higher? Are, are your guys actually sprinting faster? And then, like, you're kind of like, okay, well, while I technically could, I am working on rate of force level speed, is it actually transferring? Is it actually making them faster? And this is why I liked you, because you were always like, I remember like one day, I, I think I put up something and you kind of wrote to me on Facebook, you're like, what do you use to uh, to like, to like test your guys? And I was kind of like, 
Honestly, I don't have that much technology. I, I use a bit of you know jump profile. I've sometimes I, I get some time and gates, but I don't usually have the environment to keep the environment consistent. But you know that's what I liked about you. You were like people keep saying that they're training power and training speed. It's like, but they're not. They're not. There's no numbers. Yeah. So I'll make this uh, because I'm trying to add entertainment so that you know if people are driving late at night, they don't fall asleep. Because um, most people, I I listen to the podcasts while I'm driving. But, uh, me too, yeah, me too. Is that I am a numbers guy because I was not a numbers guy. You know, you know, everyone keeps basic numbers, but you know, when you're asking really tough questions, you got to have evidence to say back up your claims. Yeah. And even this drives me nuts. I'm seeing these published research studies of entire legions of youth academy athletes running faster than than drug band sprinters. Yeah. It's like. How are they testing this stuff? And so for me, it's like... A stopwatch. It's so reliable. Or, 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 or they... Again, they could be using electronic timing. But, it's br- yeah. but there's a big difference between beam-based yeah. versus body-based. So like if you have a sensor on someone's center of mass, you know, someone can walk a couple steps behind a beam and get a rolling start. Yeah. So a lot of the stuff is based upon procedures and protocols and I'm seeing basic testing not being done properly. Yeah. When you go visit, you think like, okay, you know, you're trying to make sure that there's some standardization and repeatability. I'm not even seeing that. Yeah. I'm just seeing like just a lot of shoot from the hip stuff. I remember, I remember when we met in, in back in the summer and you said, uh, I remember one thing you said to me and it kind of stuck with me and because I get this too, you said, you know, you read about, uh, you read uh, articles or you read uh, you read a lot of things from these people and then you actually go see what they're doing and it's not what they say they're doing at all. And, and when you said that, now, and I bet you, you probably don't even remember saying that to me, but when you said that to me, that resonated with me because I am convinced and it's like, that's this is this is nothing like you described. It's Well, the, my, my workouts are based on US track and skills level two program you know, volumes and intensities and some adjustments, it hasn't changed much because the track is pretty straightforward. Mm. But when you go and visit, the question is, is like, for example, PRI, right? You see this awesome blog and guys are doing, you know, the left rib and, you know, they're, they're, they're engaging the, you know, the psoas. Oh, the hate mail, the hate mail's coming in. <laughs> no, 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 no. Let me defend PRI. I'm, jo- I'm joking. I'm joking. I was joking. I, I I saw it done in 1999 when you know when when it wasn't as you know popular as oh, now. Well, sure, nobody but, knew about it back then. Yeah. But but like the, the the thing is, it's like okay, this guy's talking about it, but then when you visit the coach, he's with a group. So I'm like, hey, where's the PRI now? Oh, so you're you know you do it for maybe a couple guys that are returned to play for a couple sessions, but most of the time what you do is probably going to be crowd control. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, you know, is what what you talk about, what I'm interested in is, should be what you're doing, what you're doing, but I, I don't see that. Yeah. You know, um, I visit, uh, I visited, um, actually a really good guy named uh, Keenan, um, he's the, uh, Keenan Robinson's the, like a medical performance guy for Arizona State University. Oh, and also works with Michael Phelps mm. and that group. So I just I, I just went out there and I, you know you want to do some things to to just make.
make sure that you can raise the sport. And guess what? Everything that you, you kind of talk about is being done. Yeah. It, it, it's it's almost like a relief to know, like, hey, this this is real. Yeah, yeah. So it's always good to visit because you'll be pleasantly surprised, um, uh, and then you'll have like at least some, uh, you know, kind of a a person you can count on as a sounding board down the road. You know, you can learn from. I went to Phoenix and I just I felt like I opened my eyes to like, okay, I feel better now. Yeah. Versus, you know, you go, it's like uh, the Wizard of Oz. And it's like anticlimactic. You're you're a hero, and you go, and it's just like us. Oh, that's it's not what you thought. Yeah, so just a little man behind the curtain. <laughs> <laughs> so, Carl, this is, we, we won't I won't spend too much longer. Maybe just about another six six or so, six ten minutes. Yeah. But uh, just qu- quickly here, g- give me your thoughts on on heart rate variability. Yeah, heart rate variability. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there. The the main thing is. I start with the uncomfortable decisions of what do people do for patients that have heart problems? So there's a lot of stuff that's out there that's talking about real time, whatever. Main thing is with heart rate variability, you get the basics, which is heart rate, mm-hmm. and you make sure that the procedure is done consistently. Yeah. And then, you know, you can start splitting uh, things into, you know, other scores, you got iFleet, Omega Wave, you have a new product called Whoop, uh, you have uh, Tink, all this other stuff, but the main thing is is supporting your, your, your phone and getting that data mobile and then broadcasting that to uh, an AMS product so that your coach has the wellness questionnaire, uh, a little bit of notation, and the resting heart rate and HRV scores. And uh, I know you said on Rob Pacey's podcast, he was asking you, do you, do you still find heart rate uh, a very important marker to, to keep a track of? And you still you said you said that you still felt it was it was an important marker heart rate to use, um, in in training overall. Do you do you, do you think it's very important to use in training and also outside of training? Yeah, I, I use heart rate. In terms of like your traditional heart rate monitoring mm-hmm. uh, for recovery workouts, yeah. so you can kind of have a weekly sample. I use it for tempo once a week. Nice. Uh, I like the Sunto Ambit Three. That's my uh, product of choice. Uh, uh, for the tempos, Carol, what where are you going in that sort of sixty to seventy-five percent kind of recovery range? Is it or for tempo? Uh, for for heart rate or velocity? For heart rate. Um. I just keep the velocity the same so that the the work is is always standardized, mm-hmm. and then I look at the heart rate to see if it's drifting. Okay. okay. So what I try to do is make sure that I answer four simple questions: Are we staying in shape, getting in more shape, getting out of shape, or overreaching? Yeah. Um, the next thing with heart rate data is that if you look at a lot of the altitude training. Symptoms and questionnaires aren't ideal tools. So the question is, is a familiar, easy workout elevated? You know, then you can tell who's responding poorly to elevation. It's talking to a coach who's, who has to prepare for altitude. And he, that they, the, the research said, you know, you got to look at the, the thing that was reliable was heart rate. Yeah. Um, so I like using heart rate data as a way to 
look at um, weekly trends and conditioning. Um, if you talk to, I, I, I hate nearly all the products. Um, I like for recovering from the ambit because soccer players, they have to chest the ball, and the modern units are like these nuggets that are on the chest, mm-hmm. and it's just uncomfortable. There's a lot of uh, contact sports. It's just, it just like, for example, I have a colleague who is a high-level MMA wrestling coach, um, and how do you put a heart rate sensor on a on an MMA fighter. Yeah, it's it's the same with the rugby players over here. I I've, I was at Munster and Ulster Rugby, and I was talking to their GPS guys and and the and the coaching staff there, and I was like, "Do you get any heart rate numbers?" And they were just like, "We can't. They're smashing. Yeah. They're like they're smashing into each other. It wouldn't work." Yeah, even if you put it on like uh uh the, the smart fabric skirts that that's out there. Yeah. It's still not ready. Um. So that's my little complaint there. But you know, you don't need to get heart rate all the time. You know, a lot of guys don't like wearing straps or even the shirts. They never seem to fit athletes because they're trying to, you know, most of these startups are trying to satisfy uh, the millions of regular people. The, the, other, the, the other thing with heart rate, too, it, it's, it's, I don't know, maybe you could dis- might disagree, but it, it is, is it, it, it's hard to get a really, really true, true maximum heart rate. Like, either, like, all the, all the, like, estimated equations are all fairly flawed, but even, like, you know, the, I often see that the, the, a lot of people do, like, tests where they bring it to a maximum, and then when it starts to plateau, they'll say, right, well, that's where your maximum heart rate is, but sure, who knows, the day that you tested, you might have been at your best, you know, you might have been slightly fatigued going in that day, or whatever, you might have been, that might have been a true reflection, but I suppose you can make that argument about any test, you know, if you went in and sure, hit... Sure, but with heart rate, and this is where people have to understand, you can get a lot of nice things from trip. Yeah. Uh, and that's crude. That's okay to have crude data. But with heart rate, one of the problems with it is like you have to have fresh legs if you really want to get it all out out. Yeah. And you have to be fast enough and fit enough in order to push your heart that high. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I just look at just, you know, is, is the average work with a given lowered effort or lowered velocity increasing? You know, in terms of res- response rate. So, I don't know. I mean, I think heart rate data is good for practices for trip, but I, I would never look at it as the way that's going to be like the holy grail. So, just and your your recommended heart rate monitor is that, that what it's called? Your, what uh, heart rate monitor, like the Ambit Three? And that's the one you like to go with Ambit Three. Yeah, because you know, hey, make sure the athletes show up on time so they use a watch. Yeah. Um, that's a little bit of a joke because it's amazing when we have all these uh, watches and people show up to work out late. Oh, it was late, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I like it because you can program it and the data is really good. And, and can you can you take that data and then put it up onto your computer? Obviously, you can. You, like you just you just like put a U, yes, U, USB. Yes, the, the the Suto Ambit Three. Um, there's a connection on Training Peaks. So if you work with endurance athletes, you can do that. Nice. They have a software called Moves Count. Nice. And they now are connecting through an app. So, yeah, so I'm just I'm personally myself. I'm looking to get just a heart rate system where I can obviously just log in my 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 data after each session onto my computer. I, so. I would go with the Ambit Three Sport. Nice. And just just get it, and, and it's a perfect solution for an individual. Great. It's enterprise friendly for. For people that are dealing with a good endurance community, yeah, it's not the tool for a team because 
with teams, it's, you're kind of chauffeuring and being like kind of like a data butler, but getting all the equipment. So you just kind of have to use what you have, uh, the conventional stuff. Uh, Carl, I know you you deal more so with individual athletes, but uh, and I asked you this on Facebook uh, through the message, and it's more so just for me, but I'm finding it very hard personally to find any sort of like um, GPS for dummies or GPS 101. All I ever find when I'm looking for GPS is like research papers that are like, and they're showing data like, you know, oh, in a game of rugby or soccer, they, they did this much high speed running and this much walking and jogging. I was like, I, I know that's what it looks at, but I, like, I want, an, is there any sort of information out there that tells me, like, here's a system, here's how you'd put a system together, here's like, like you know what I mean? Like, basically, a user's manual of a GPS system. Do you? Uh, there isn't, um, but there's going to be a lot of stuff available. Ben Peterson from Catapult is very good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with GPS, since you're in Ireland, the product called Player Tech. Player Tech, yeah. I see. I've actually seen that. They they give like a you can like buy an individual an, an individual pack. Yeah, it's uh so GPS with uh you know sort of the more available products and some of the the larger more powerful products, it's going to grow. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing really out there like kind of like a, a GPS for dummies or or I mean you got Lot and Jovanovic, which is like. You know, you have to make sure you get a, a couple shots of espresso because he is extremely analytical. Oh, so yeah. It's harder to consume, but yeah. his work is probably the best I've seen uh, in terms of, of of just basically education that's public. Yeah. Um, the, the stuff that's private, like kind of like the, the conferences and the workshops that some of these GPS companies provide are excellent as well. Mm-hmm. So I like to learn from the coaches. Will there be something um, for, for the masses? Yeah. I think with wattage on the bike, you're going to see GPS for the you know, the youth sport, the uh, weekend warrior probably in a year or so. Great stuff. All right, but there's, nothing, there's nothing. Sorry, Robbie. There's just not really much out there. Oh, no, no. And the, but the, that even answers because of my question. I was like, is there anything even out there? So it's just... Now that I know that there isn't, but there probably, as you said, it probably will be, and I'll definitely go on to Maladin. I mean, Maladin is someone I want to get on the uh, definitely on the podcast. You see, he got he got a new job in Australia. You saw that. Uh, what's he doing? He's uh, with uh, I think he's with Port Adelaide with Darren Burgess. Darren used to okay. be with Liverpool, yeah. So he, he got uh, a new excellent. Role. I I was worried that he you know he, he basically was thinking about getting an MBA, so you know didn't know if he's going to be the next uh, you know business tycoon or whatever. But Do- uh, Donald Donald Trump. Yeah. Well, <laughs> All right. You know, so, just if you look at if, if you look at Lon and Zavonovitz, uh, um you know, American uh, YouTube links on on social media, you can tell that he probably is not going to be in that direction. But uh, oh yeah, yeah, I know. Anyway, so I think that's some great questions, Robbie. Hopefully, I've made them entertaining enough so that you know, because a lot of stuff is rehashed. I still, I, I still have, I still have three more. Oh great! <laughs> uh, so I'm just, I just, that's why I just kind of wanted to make sure I fit them in. So th- these are just you know kind of wrap up questions. So uh, for all the listeners, Carl, what you know, all, anyone listening to this, I always used to say you know the young coaches, but like I get coaches of all ages. And what would your uh, top advice be to uh, anyone listening to the podcast? And and, uh, that, and and that advice doesn't have to be just limited to human performance. It can be anything, you know. It could be meditate, could be walk more, read more biographies, or spend more time with your partner, or whatever. That's good. I think the best thing to do is this day and age is uh, get back to nature. Nice. 
think that there's a, a lot of movements out there to get away from the technology side and the city side and, and just get quiet, get space. Yeah. So I think it's very healthy now to get more retreats that are that have an affinity to nature. I think that's a nice wellness and can help an athlete after a long season. It can help a coach who's struggling with burnout, and it can get you inspired to to get back and, and exercising outdoors more. Great. Uh, and I know, uh, again, personally, when, when we communicated through Facebook and email, uh, I asked you for some resources, and you gave me three top-quality resources, The Science of Winning, you gave me uh, Mechanics of Athletics um, by uh, Dyson, Je- Jeffrey Dyson, and then you gave me the Peak Win Accounts by Freeman, um, and also you sent me on some of your own writings, which, for anyone listening, Carl has an amazing manual, and I keep getting on to him to finish it and release it, because it's absolutely brilliant, so for anyone that is at social media friends of Carl, send him, send him a message right now and say, get on it. <laughs> But uh, just what what will be your top resources then to any listeners? So obviously the books I just named, but again, this doesn't have to be just limited to uh, human performance. Like so, resources could be you know again read this book that has nothing to do with human performance. It might be just a self development book or a, a a course, a DVD, listen to a person, whatever. It could be anything. Yeah. So I think uh, um, I, I mentioned this uh, back. Gosh. Uh, I could go check. I think we first communicated on your blog. Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah, an interview about 2010. Hello? Yeah, yeah. I'm multitasking. I went to try to look at that blog to remember what I wrote. But I remember Hackers and Painters. That was one of the books. I'd have to look back too, but... uh... So... So, based upon the top of my head, Gutterash for Bach was another one, and that's heavy reading. Trust me, that's not something you can just pick up and read between innings. Um, and then, besides that, I think uh, what I always go back to is anything from the American Swim Coaches Association, the gold-winning, gold medal books. The, those, those, those things are just a gold mine, no pun intended. Yeah, they they. It's funny. Uh, my first mentor in the field was Martina McCarthy, and she's very very well read. And she, I remember like uh, when like the big when Joel Jameson's book was huge on energy systems, and she said, "Get this book." And it was that book by your man Jan Albig, the Science of Winning. And she was like, "If you want to learn about energy systems and training, she's like read that." And uh, and again, it was kind of it was a bit like Joel's book in that when you when you mention that book to people, they go, "But it's an MMA book." Like, well, what's that got to do with like American football or whatever? And you're like. It don't. It's still applicable, and like you know, when you see her book, it was like it's a swimming book. She's like, no, just get it. it, it it'll make sense. Yeah. So. so the science of winning. I mean, that's uh, obviously been around for a while. Um, the that the reason I brought that up, I got first exposed to that stuff in the in the nineties, and it's like, and then a lot of the, the research from that was kind of about the eighties. Yeah, yeah. So it shows. Even in 2015, people need to get you know their heads, you know, with with what's what's really modern. Um, it's scary that you know we have to refer back to stuff. Literally, most of the books I suggest people do. You got to go to Bookbinder.com, and you know the great thing is that it's dirt cheap. 
But I suppose it, it goes back to like you know like training principles don't change like and and you know the science that we currently know does not change that fast in terms of like anatomy and and biology and physiology and chemistry and physics. I mean, so when people understand that, like that's one thing I've I've started to realize a lot more over the past twelve to eighteen months. Like you know, I even listened to podcasts with Tom Telez and Tom Telez is just like he's like once you know like basic science like the biomechanics physiology and kinesiology is like then like he's like he didn't say this but basically he's like your bullshit your bullshit detector will will go up an awful lot like when some coaches are like yeah well we do this because of this it's like well that's scientifically impossible so like you know he's basically he's he's like he's like saying once you know science it makes coaching a lot better and then like the likes of mike israel who's who's guys released a lot of books lately he, he released a book called The Scientific Principles of Strength Training and he's talking about like you know he's, he speaks about seven training principles specificity overload recovery adaptation variation phase potentiation individuality and he put them in a hierarchy in that order so like he would say specificity would be the most important of all of them but again his whole, whole idea was like once you understand training principles like nothing changes I mean and training principles have been around for fucking decades like so it just uh, it goes back to like you know if the information is based on science and it's sound and it's solid it doesn't really matter when that book was written like even Dan Faft was saying every at the start of every season he goes back and reads Jeffrey Dyson's book The Mechanics of Athletics and he says he takes something new from it every time yeah but there's also got to be cognizant of changes oh absolutely that, absolutely yeah yeah. again but, it's self balance yeah in a perfect example of this is understanding muscle cramping and dehydration and you know I've been always making sure that the, the I think it's the science of sport Ross Tucker or uh, I always watch that and read that stuff because you know there's some stuff that simply is so accepted because the science was so general that well, didn't bother to really thoroughly investigate. Yeah, no, you definitely, uh, definitely. I hope so. And just to make sure everyone, everyone hears this too, and and, and you do. I hundred percent agree with that. A hundred percent agree. It, yeah, but you're, but you're mainly. What your your point is exactly on hitting on the head is. It's good to get a foundation of basic sciences and really make sure that your foundation's good yeah. before you start getting to sports science. Yeah, there's a lot of people that want to know about like. You know some really exotic and esoteric things. They just don't have a foundation of of, of sensibility. Yeah, they they've nothing. Yeah, they've no foundation to base that stuff up against. So they can't. They don't really know what to do then with that information. That's what I personally found as well. You know that once now, now that my sort of foundational science is, is getting much better in terms of my knowledge, like my my whole top process in training seems to be just more well rounded now that I have better sort of principles underpinning everything. But and as, and as, and as we just alluded to there, I'm still not I'm not saying to be closed minded off to new advances in science. I mean that's what we're trying to do as a species is to constantly advance with the more we learn. Yeah, not much to we have a lot of ways to go, but there's we're 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 not really making a lot of innovations or and and, and should it be? I don't think it. There's not much to work with. Hundred meter dash. No one's gonna really find a a new way of locomotion. You know, it's not like uh, yeah, yeah. You know, like it's not like swimming where like people just invent new strokes. You know. Yeah, true enough. Final question, Carl. The biggest lessons you've learned so far in your career. Maybe like give us your top uh, three biggest lessons. Biggest lessons. Simple. Um. Is I, I alluded this earlier. If you're if you're competing, think about trying to win better versus coach smarter. Uh, coaches think about coaching. Coaches need to think about winning. 
So it's to step back at the thirty thousand square, the thirty thousand uh, foot view, um, and 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 see what it takes to win, and that's where you get more creative juices. Um, also, the most important thing I've learned on the on the performance side is that you know sports psychology is the most underrated part of what we do, yet no one talks about. It. Yeah. So that's that's something that you know you can have a podcast just on that. You know, no one really thanks their sports psychologist when they win the medal, but I think everyone is a sports psychologist to some point. Yeah. So I think that sports psychology is an area that we need to do better at. It's not just about giving confidence to to people or preventing choking. It's it's really a little bit more complicated. Definitely. And then the last thing is is honesty. You know, when we look at data, for me, science and history is the best proxy to truth. I'm, so I'm, 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 really I'm glad you said that. I remember you said it to me in the summer too, and that resonated with me as well. And I, I've been using that because uh, coaches are truth seekers versus performance enhancers. Yeah. So the closer you get to, to seeking the truth, the better you're going to get in performance. So that's the top of the head. I'm running out of steam. It's been uh, me being long-winded and rambling. No, there's still, there, 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 still, still lots of nuggets in there, and I'm, I'm glad we actually were finishing up on that in that you look at science and history. I really, Because I remember what he said to me in the summer. That was a little note I made in my mind. So that was really, really good. Cal, fine, where can people find out more about you? Uh, you go to, the easiest thing to do is you know, go to my, my Twitter uh, you put my name in. It's Carl with a C, Valley, which is V A L E, and not I not va- not Vale, by the way, Valley. Yeah, not the I'm not the ski destination in Colorado, <laughs> um, and I'm not a, a corporate Vale or a wedding Vale. That's good. Um, but anyway, the the uh, um, yeah, I mean that's the easiest thing to do. I'll put those links into the show notes to your Twitter and your, your Facebook and, and Freelap USA and what else? Yeah, uh, com. I'll do that I too. And then um, it's a great product, great company. And then, of course, uh, Spikes Only is a newsletter to help out um, you know, emerging talents and printing. Great stuff. And, uh, so Carl I'll get those links off you and then when I put the show notes up that'll all be in the show notes for everyone so guys what a brilliant interview with Coach Caravalli absolute you know pleasure having him on the podcast I'm absolutely delighted that we finally got together and that we made this happen so for everyone listening thanks so much I'll talk to you next time take care and stay strong <laughs>